Our sermon text for this morning is Luke chapter 6. If you've got a pew Bible that you want to look off of, it's found on page 1025. Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 42. Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 42. Continuing here with Jesus' sermon on the plain. Luke chapter 6, 37 through 42. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck that is in, take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Grass withers, flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So it used to be that the most well-known verse kind of in Christian culture was John 3.16, right? And we had football games and wherever that you would go and you would always see a sign of John 3.16 and the generations were, were that was the verse, I mean, that was just entry level. You, if you didn't know John 3.16, it was like, did you, have you known, been at church at all and know anything? John 3.16 was the thing we knew for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life, however you memorized it. And this is just it's a great verse. It's a, it was good reason, was it kind of the uh, entry level, everyone's got to know John 3.16. With good reason, we knew John 3.16. But today, there's been kind of a shift on what's the most popular thing, and this is a this scene in Christianity. And this is a totally unscientific uh, bit of research that I've done. But if you check Facebook, uh, far more often then you see John 3.16, you'll see the first two words from our passage quoted as basically the banner of Christianity. Banner of Christianity used to be John 3.16. And now we don't use references even so much, so they wouldn't say uh, Luke 6.37, or they wouldn't say Matthew 7.1, but they would say something like this, judge not. And, and much of the Christian shift, like it becomes the banner, is not John 3.16, it is judge not don't judge we might if you're on facebook or twitter or whatever they would hashtag it don't judge uh, and that has become it's almost dethroned john three sixteen, and what it means to be a christian has become don't judge right matt luke six thirty six. judge not judge not um and what is meant, though, when we see this, that this judge not from Jesus, what's often meant by that is this modern notion of, you cannot tell me that I'm wrong. You cannot tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. That's judging. 
you judge not. And so basically it is, it is a way to endorse every behavior that a person wants to do because, well, you, if you're a Christian, you can't judge me. Judge not, right? And that's the line of thinking that comes so often when this banner that you see of people, they think they're, you know, the, the best, the only two, the two-word verse in the Scripture, Jesus wept, used to be the favorite two-word verse everyone can memorize, but now they memorize, judge not. Although, it's far from the whole verse. They memorize, judge not. But, when, when we do this, it's, it's far from the line of, of what biblical thinking, the rest of the biblical teaching is on this issue. There are many places we could go to that are undeniably sections that call out wrongdoing as sin. That just, that flat out says these are things that are wrong. That you need to judge these things as sin. We could go like to Colossians 3 Verses 5-9, through nine, it says this, "...has put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry." You don't get to say to Paul, Paul, judge not at this point. "...on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put, away, put them all away." Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Calling out sins, when when we put up this banner of judge not, calling out sins as sin is not is 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 judging, is saying these things are sin, but it is it is not it is love acting itself as calling calling sin for what it is, sin. Calling these sins out and those we love. Is not judging, it is loving them. Saying, this is wrongdoing, this is sin. There are also sections we could go to that just flat out tell us that as Christians, as believers, we are to correct and rebuke those who are engaging in sinful behavior. We could look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, which says, Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? They're dealing with sexual immorality within the church, and they're calling, Paul is telling them, Judge this guy who's acting immorally. It, it's, it's your job to judge those who are in the church. Or 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, it says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so, the, so that the rest may stand in fear. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. So you can kind of see how the weight of Scripture that we've twisted in our culture today, this idea of judge not, to mean something it doesn't really mean. We've taken it to mean something that it doesn't really mean. But actually, you don't, even have, you don't have to even go outside of this context to see that. Because if you look at the end of the passage, when Jesus goes into the story of taking the log out of your own eye, the, the whole goal of taking the log out of your own eye is so you can help your brother take the speck out of theirs is that the eventual goal is so that you can still help your brother take the speck out of their eye. Jesus doesn't, make, Jesus doesn't share this parable as to say, take the log out of your own eye and only do that. He's saying the whole point of it is so that when you take out the log of, that is in your own eye, then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. Obviously, what is re- involved here is the eventual speck removal of your brother, but 
that, and so the, the term judge not, as it is typically used, really doesn't apply. So then, what is meant here? I kind of had to throw all that out to kind of counter what seems to be a big cultural assumption when we talk about judge not. So then, what is meant here? What is the message that Jesus is communicating? It's, it's clear that his sermon has a flow to it. So we can't really divorce this from just the previous sentence where in verse 36, Jesus says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. It's clearly a continuation of thought from that statement. And I'm going to summarize this kind of section with with this big idea. Here's the big idea from this morning. The big idea is to don't look out at others speaking judgment without first looking hard at yourself and hearing God's mercy. It's not a complicated big big idea. It's real easy. Don't look out at others speaking judgment without first looking hard at yourself and hearing God's mercy. As we get into this, I want to just point something out with these first three verses here. This judge not, you'll not be judged. Condemn not, you'll be not condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. There's just a real a proverbial kind of like basic level obviousness to this passage, to this point that Jesus is making. Sometimes when we get into our Bibles, we're trying to always, or maybe this is just me, but maybe it's you as well, we're trying to see the thing behind the thing behind the thing. And at, at just a face level value, this has a ton of wisdom to it. Judge not, and you'll be not judged. Condemn not, and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. There's just some obvious practicality to Christ's sermon here. And what I mean is, if, if in your gathering of people, if you're in your friend group, in your household with your children, at your job, wherever it may be, um, that's kind of maybe a little more uncontrollable on your end. But in the various circles that you are in, if you create an environment, if you're constantly in this group of people that you're with, seeking to not judge others, not condemn others. When the chance comes and everyone's kind of beating somebody up, condemning them, and you decide, I'm not going to be condemning. If the group is always holding grudges and you start trying to forgive inside of this group, if you build up that sort of environment that is always forgiving, that is not judging, that is not condemning, when the moment comes from this group that you're with, Um, starts to be able to condemn back at you and judge back at you and not forgive you and not give to you, you'll find just very naturally that as you have spoken forgiveness, as you have spoken, I'm not judging, I'm not condemning, that it very often, not as a total absolute rule, but very often, that's what you begin to get back. Somebody would say, well, I remember Darren forgave me time and time again, or on these different issues, I had done this and I, he was forgiving. Or someone spoke bad about him or whatever, and he was said, we're not going to judge, we're going to hold back on the judgment, so that when the word comes back around to them, or I've wronged them, they've got this, they've got this relationship of, we deal in forgiveness. You see the practicality of that? I mean, there's just a real sense, and what Jesus is saying is just proverbial wisdom. Judge not, and you'll not be judged. Condemn not, and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Likewise with giving. 
If you are a giving person and the opportunity comes when you need something and you've given to lots of people, aren't they not more inclined to willingly give back to you? It's just kind of proverbial wisdom. But I do want to press a little harder into this passage because the demands of this passage cause two realities to come to life. When we start talking about the sermons of Jesus and his demands and his laws, these, these, this causes two realities to come to life. And the first reality is just what I said. It, it causes us to want to live up to this standard. It causes us to want to, to, to be the kind of people who do not judge, who do not condemn, to be people who forgive, to be people who give. And it, it calls us up. That's one reality that comes away from a passage like this. It, it encourages, it provokes us in an effort to do and to live up to what this says. But the other reality that it raises is it crushes us with what it's really saying. The other reality is that it crushes us and it lays us low. Because as soon as you sit here this morning and decide, you know what? I'm going to listen to Jesus. I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to condemn. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to give. You're going to go to lunch and somebody's going to say something to you and you're going to realize, I can't live up to this. (laughs) Or you're going to see someone in need and you're going to decide, well, you know, maybe they can get help from, I don't know, someone else. Or, you know, you're, you're, and, and besides all of that, besides going out and maybe performing it later today, you haven't done it yet, right? You've failed this all along the way. So Jesus cuts kind of both ways in that it calls us, yes, I want to be this kind of person. I want to go out these doors and be like that. And then it also just cuts us in half because the reality is, we fall short of not judging, not condemning, always forgiving and always giving all along the way. This is, we are crushed by the law. One of the, one of the uses of the law, three uses of the law, we won't go into them. One of the main functions of the law is just to crush us, to realize if this is what we're supposed to be like, I'm in trouble. I need something outside of myself Because if it's up to me, it's not going to be. This is not law light. It's not law 64. It's not like, you know, it's got got some of the functions of it. It helps us get better or whatever. It helps us refine. But it doesn't really, it doesn't have all the consequences like of condemning you. This isn't law light. Many times it's the way we read the commands of Scripture, right? We, we, We read them as a suggestion. Jesus is saying, you know, go out and try not to judge people, try not to condemn, try to be forgiving, try to give. That's law light. And that is not what Jesus is is saying. He's commanding, telling them to do this. And have you honestly never judged anyone, never condemned anyone, always forgiven and always given? No, let's not be ridiculous. So when we read the law, it's important to let it crush us Because that's when the gospel comes to us. When we're cut in half by the law, when we are crushed by the law, when we are laid low, that's when we finally laid on our backs, have the eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. This is where we need to remember the gospel. The good news is not to do these things for your reward, but the good news is see what Jesus has already done. Repent, believe in him, and then do these things in your joy. 
of I haven't been judged. As my Father has been merciful to me, I now go and be merciful. As my Father has not judged me, but judged Christ, I now go and I don't judge. As my Father has given to me, though I don't deserve it, I now go and I give. As my Father has forgiven me, though I don't deserve it, I now go and I forgive. Titus chapter 3 just says this very plainly. If you still got your Bible there with you. First, Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. So it's easiest to find Hebrews and then go left to find Titus. Titus chapter 3 just lays this out clearly. Remind them, remind them, this is Titus chapter 3 verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. Sound familiar? To avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. See the connection there. He's saying this is what God has done, not that we have attained his righteousness through our own effort, but because of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration through the renewal of the Holy Spirit, because of his loving kindness, he has saved us. And now that we see his saving of us, so that being, verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And the connection that is being written here through Titus is not do your good works to get your regeneration, to be justified. It is see that your works have merited nothing. You've fallen short. The law has laid you low. See that your salvation is dependent upon the work of Christ. He has rescued you. He has forgiven you. He has raised you up to newness in life. And then in seeing His mercy towards you, it provokes you to then go to do good works. This is how it works out. This is how God, remembering that God has been merciful to sinners, that's what fuels the mercy from us to others. From us to others. So, back in Luke, how does, how does Jesus say that this plays out? And it plays out by being the kind of people who, whose first look is hard at themselves. Remember the big idea we were having? Don't look out at others speaking judgment without first looking hard at yourself and hearing God's mercy. This is the point that Jesus goes into when he's talking about uh, they're the blind leading the blind and, and you, a disciple doesn't raise above his teacher. But after those few statements, Jesus um, uses this image to communicate his point. That it's, it's a very obvious illustration, is it not? That Jesus, uh, this, I, this scene of someone with this giant log in their eye. I mean, it's meant to be kind of a ridiculous picture, Right? Somebody's walking around with this giant log sticking out of their eye, and they're saying, well, here, you've got, a, you've got a speck of dust. Let me clean that up. And everyone in the room would be like, 
this is, that's not the elephant in the room, it's the log in the room now, right? This guy's got a log sticking out of his eye, and he's going to help somebody else. I mean, it's a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous kind of illustration that he's using. The point is obvious, and this is where we get the big idea for today. Don't look out at others speaking judgment without first looking hard at yourself and hearing God's mercy. The point that Jesus is making is to be sure that we recognize our place when it comes to dealing with other sinners and with other sins. And that place is mainly by recognizing that we ourselves are sinners and that we are in serious need of mercy. The problem comes with these Pharisees as they were laying out the law and they were judging people. They felt they had done everything right, like our Romans 2 this morning. They had circumcision. They had observed all the external laws. They were good. Get in line, they would say. And what was lost from their reality was that they themselves were the ones needing of mercy. The way that we deal with other sinners and with other sins is by recognizing that we ourselves are sinners as well. And we are in serious need of mercy. So two warnings and two implications from this passage. Be wary. Two warnings. This is practical application here. Two warnings. Be wary of speck hunting in your life. Be wary of speck hunting and your reactions. When you're looking around and you're identifying all the specks in everybody's eyes, everybody's eye, eyes, specks and eyes, or a speck in an eye, or specks in eye, or speck in eyes, whatever, whatever the combination is, be wary of speck hunting. Uh, there's a story. We, just, we tend to do this. Do we not? We gravitate towards always being very astute at identifying everyone else's speck and calling out specks and seeing, oh my gosh, they are doing this, they're doing this, they're doing the other thing, and quick to judge that. Be very careful that David, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, the, he has the sin with Bathsheba. You remember the sin with Bathsheba that he has laid around in his palace, saw Bathsheba um, as she was going through her ritual and getting clean, and he noticed her. He's like, I want you to come on over, and he uh, ha- commits adultery with Bathsheba and then uh, makes a plan to have her husband killed because she becomes pregnant with his child. So she, he arranges this whole event to get her husband killed so that it can look like he can then take Bathsheba in and it's all okay. And the prophet Nathan comes up to, to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and he gives him this story of a, a rich man with a lot of sheep and a poor man with only one sheep. And the rich man has a, a, a visitor come by, and, but he doesn't want to spend his own sheep. So what he does is he goes and he takes the poor man's one sheep and kills it for, for the, this visitor. Um, now there came, verse 4 of chapter 12 in Second Samuel. Now there came, a, this is Nathan speaking to David. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Because he had stolen this man's, of this poor man's one sheep. And he, store, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. 
as you're identifying the specs, <laughs> the reality is David is the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king of, over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David was a speck hunter. That's wrong. He could identify it. And he had taken no time to see that the real problem was inside of himself. Be wary of speck hunting. Second, second warning, the heart we should be most suspicious and critical of is our own. The heart you should be most suspicious and critical of is our own. Because honestly, even if we were able to switch on to be hypercritical of ourselves, we're still going to let ourselves off the hook time and time again. Four times as much, I would say, scientifically, uh, by my guess. I would say we let ourselves off the hook four times as much. But I mean, we, honestly, if you were, you're looking inside of yourself... If you're going to be even hypercritical, you know 5,000 reasons. You've got endless justifications for why you do what you do. And so you generally, when you misbehave or do, or you sin or you transgress or you get angry or you refuse to forgive someone, you've got all sorts of reasons. And so you kind of let yourself off the hook. But boy, you see somebody else do something and you know exactly why they did what they did and it does not add up. Do you not? The heart you need to be most suspicious of is your own. When you see someone else immediately doing something, you cast them into a black and white scenario. Oh, that was wrong, and then they have no reason to do it. But you look at your own heart, you would know all kinds of reasons. G.K. Chesterton, a British uh, thinker and writer, there was this paper that was written out, and they, they asked the question for responses, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, if you ever read, ever read any of his stuff, he's very he's a very eloquent great writer you would expect this big long reason what's wrong with the world chesterton and he sends back a letter and he says but he just says this dear sirs i am sincerely yours gk chesterton what's wrong with the world he sends back dear sirs i am i am the problem and how different is that from our common attitude today if we ask what's wrong with the world today how many would answer everyone out there is and Chesterton sees that the heart you need to be most suspicious of and most critical of is your own. And one of the benefits, so those are the two warnings, but so implications, one of the benefits of always seeking to understand our own sin first is that in seeing our sin and seeing God's mercy come to us in spite of our sin makes us wonderful, merciful counselors. That when those come to us with their sin, when we have first done the work of seeing our own sinfulness, and seeing God's incredible grace and mercy coming to us, when people come to us confessing sin or having problems, we don't get on our high horse and say, what are you doing? I can't believe you would do that. We say, I know what that's like. You need to hear the gospel just like I do. When you have a clear view of your own troubles and your own rebellion, you're not so shocked when you hear of others' sins and others' rebellion. And you're able to counsel them not as balcony people, but you're trying to come up here where I am. That's kind of the way counseling or Christian friendship goes. I've got it figured out. Come up here with me. Instead of having to be a balcony counseling, you're, let's walk this out together. Oh, you're messed up? Oh, you're a sinner? Oh, you need God's grace? Join me. Join me. Yes, we do. 
Yes, we do. We make pathway pleas with them for them to come along with us in repentance and faith and joy in the gospel. And being tough, being this tough on your own heart, it, on the errors of our own hearts, causes great rejoicing in the gospel. I was having coffee with a friend of mine who's not a believer. And we, were discuss, I was, we were talking about kind of common idols and, and common sins and pursuits and dissatisfactions. And I was talking about my joy in Christ in, in reflection to seeking other things instead of Christ. And his response when I was talking about all these things, he's, he just, you're being kind of hard on yourself, aren't you? Why are you so hard? Why are you so critical of yourself? And he had no frame of reference for anything besides I was obviously engaged in self-hate. But the reality is, is far from that. When you dive into the depths of your own depravity, when you see the sickness of your own soul, when you see the condemnation that you really do deserve, and you see the love with which God loves you in the depths of that pit, it opens your eyes up to real worth. Not self-worth, real worth. That God has said, God has given you the value through the giving of His Son. It is not some recognition of worth that we arrogantly believe we have produced and then fear the rest of our lives we're going to lose. It's a declaration of worth that God has saying, you are my child, I have put my affection on you. We work so hard at trying to build self-worth, and the world is failing miserably at it. But the Christian gospel is not about building self-worth. It's about seeing yourself accurately and seeing that in spite of your sinfulness, the love of God for you, his mercy towards you, through his son, Jesus Christ, him choosing to set your affections on you. So, this is a call for us to be lumberjacks, basically. This is a divine call for us to be the lumberjacks of the logs of sin in our own souls. This morning is not about everybody out there. This morning is about us right here. Becoming lumberjacks of the logs in our own souls. The command to be those lumberjacks is clear. Jesus is saying, cut the logs out of your own eye. The command is clear. The courage to be a lumberjack of the logs in your own soul comes from the gospel. Comes from the gospel. There is no log too great. There is no log too large. There is no sin too huge, too great, no log too great. That once we see it, once we confess it and cut it to the ground, Jesus can't carry it away. There is no log too great that Jesus cannot carry it away. Don't look around, don't look out, the big idea. Don't look out at others speaking judgment without first looking hard at yourself and hearing God's mercy. Christ will carry your sins away. The command comes clearly from Jesus. The courage comes from the declaration of the gospel. Confess. Cut down the logs. Lay them down. There is no log so big. Jesus cannot carry it away. Psalm 103, he removes our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love towards those who fear him. What specks do you notice in others' eyes? What specks do you look around and see? Pray that God helps you to see the logs of the same stripe that are in your own eye. And when you see them, church, when you see them, beloved, when you see them, friends, when you see the log, cut it down. Cut it down. Confess them as logs of sin. Don't pretend. Don't pretend that they aren't the huge logs they are. Cut them down. 
and look to Christ. He had no logs to clear. His judgment was perfect. His innocence was blameless. But he bore the penalty for us all. Of our, the penalty of our, for our, all of our tree farming, all of our tree growing. He paid the penalty for all of our tree farming so that by repentance, lumberjacking, tree felling, our own sins, and faith in his work, we would be forgiven. We'd be made right, justified, given the righteousness of Christ, making our lives as smooth as the plains, totally free from all the trees of our own sin in God's sight. Fell the trees, lumberjack the trees of sin in your life, and trust and rejoice in the mercy of God that forgives sinners by his grace. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning by your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see. Father, we in our culture, in our, in our natural inclination, we are great spec identifiers. Father, help us. The, the, the heart that's most dangerous to us is the one that sits inside of us. God, help us to see our own sins, our own inclinations, our own rebellions against you. That we would fell those trees. That we would knock them down. We would confess them as they are, sins against you. And in doing so, rejoice. We have a Savior. We have someone who, when those trees are confessed, when they are, those sins are laid out, he can remove them taken away, cast into the depths of the sea, remembered no more, mercy outpoured upon us. God, help us to see them, confess them, and rejoice in the good news of this gospel to sinners like us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.